everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper. Today is our second episode of Bad on Politics. So just to give you a reminder of what Bad on Politics is, it's a monthly bonus episode where we're going to be joined by an expert to talk about a political topic. Our aim is to give you all the background information you need to get involved in politics and have an informed opinion. If you missed it, um, definitely check out the Alyssa Master Monaco episode from last month. And then we also have a teaser, which is just like a two-minute version of what this is. So today we are joined by Claire Malone. Claire is a senior political writer for 538, and she's frequently a contributor to the 538 Politics podcast. We're so excited to have you. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And this is really timely because the debate is tomorrow. Yeah. Well, we're going to drop it on Monday. I was like, so we're recording in advance. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. We're recording a little bit in advance to edit it and stuff, but this will go out on Monday. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, So our goal is to get everyone caught up. So you can listen to the debate and know who the heck everyone is because there are so many people on the stage. Good, so good, many good. people. Yeah, truly. We didn't introduce ourselves. I'm Becca Freeman. I'm Grace Atwood. We're all over the place. <laughs> this is new for us. We're not morning people. Now you have a pulse <laughs> on all the voices. <laughs> Here we are. But mostly we're going to hear from Claire. So today we wanted to kind of go down the line and talk through each of the candidates who is in the running and we're going to look at both the democrat candidates but then also there's a couple of republican candidates and we want to talk about who they are and their experience the quick rundown of their platform and we'll spend a little bit more time on the front runners just based on uh the most recent polling so let's go through um i have these in order of based top to bottom from the October 4th national polling average from the New York Times. I did not make this up. Somebody else made this <laughs> This is up. not Becca's personal preference order. <laughs> no. That's a good stipulation yeah. at the top. Yes. yes. We go. don't do opinions. Okay. So let's jump in with Joe Biden. Okay. What's his deal? Joe Biden is, well, man, I hope you're, I hope none of your listeners are so young that they don't remember Joe Biden from Barack Obama's era, but they might. And you know, no, I think we all we're yeah. all there. Well, okay, Joe Biden was Barack Obama's vice president, um, but he has been. But before that, he was a senator for decades and decades. In fact, he was one of the youngest people elected to the Senate. I believe he was 29 when he was elected to office. I didn't know that. Yeah, so he's been in politics for, and so he he would he would have turned 30 by the time he took the oath of office. But he's basically been in politics for truly decades. Okay, um, and he has been. Up until a couple days ago, really the pure front runner in the polls, although Elizabeth Warren sort of recent, very, very recently overtook him in the average of national polls. But Joe Biden had a real advantage coming into this race because he has a lot of name recognition. He had the whole Uncle Joe thing where he was kind of, if Barack Obama was sort of cool and aloof and uber smart and sort of professorial, Joe Biden was the one that said, you know, when health care passed, he was caught on a hot mic saying, this is a big I don't know if I can swear. You can swear. swear. This this is a big fucking deal, right? He's kind of like, he's a little bit, he just says what he thinks kind of of thing. And and he's had that reputation as sort of this affable kind of galumphy uncle for a while in politics. Um, Now, it's been interesting to watch in 2020 because Joe Biden has gotten a lot of um, flack for a lot of votes and views that he had over the many, many decades that he had in politics. So first and foremost, if you were paying attention all this summer, He kind of got in trouble for saying that two Southern segregationist Democrats um, who he had worked with in the Senate were, you know, mean guys, but at least they were civil and worked together. And a lot of people had a problem with him 
complimenting segregationist senators. And then he's also had um, people bringing up his record on really pushing for this bill called the 1994 Crime Bill, which a lot of people say led to really high levels of incarceration in black communities. So there's some interesting sort of um, tangling with history in Joe Biden's campaign, where people really, really, Democrats really, really like Barack Obama. Obama has like a 95% approval rate at post-presidency among Democrats, and especially black Democrats really like Joe Biden because Joe Biden reminds them of Barack Obama, the first black president. There you go, right? Yeah. And he's also, you know, Joe Biden is a more moderate Democrat. So if we had to sum up his platform sure. in like a couple of sentences, what is Joe Biden about? Joe Biden is about a third term Obama administration. And what I mean by that is socially progressive on all the issues that Democrats want, right? Gay marriage, abortion. Um, but he's also not looking to do single payer health care. You might hear that that phrase thrown around. So that means Medicare for all. Joe Biden basically wants to say, let's expand Obamacare. Let's let you keep your private insurance, but give you an option that if you want to if you want a public health care option, if you want the government to pay for your health care, you can have that too. So let's not freak people out by saying we're going to take away your doctor. So and, and I would also say that Biden is a little bit more moderate on immigration, which is a little bit of a of a fuzzy thing right now in the Democratic Party, because so many of the candidates just want to sort of, they kind of have to speak in response to what Trump is saying, which is quite often inflammatory rhetoric, really kind of extreme immigration policies. But Biden is a little bit more, well, we might have to, yeah, we might have to deport some people. We might have to take, we might have to, you know, throw you in jail if you cross the border illegally, right? There's a little bit more of moderation on certain issues. Um, but by and large, I would call Joe Biden an establishment Democrat for 2019, which means being progressive on a lot of issues, too. And where is he on economic policy? Like, where is he on tax policy? Kind of, I've heard some people in other debates talk about free college or things like that. Like, where does he come down economically? Biden is not going to be one of those people who is running on a platform of free college, you know, in, in the way that Bernie Sanders would. He's probably going to fall into, you know, there are other candidates like, say, Amy Klobuchar, who's another moderate, the senator from Minnesota. They might say more like, let's make two-year community college more affordable and start from there, right? Mm -hmm. Biden spends a lot of time saying, let's go back to the healthcare thing. He talks a lot about, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to pull your leg. We can't pay for that kind of healthcare. So let's, let's think within uh, the parameters of of the possible. Let's not let's not get people too excited about um, plans we can't pay for. That would be the Joe Biden line about Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. So it's a little bit more um, a confined realm of what is possible. I think. Does he have any key issues that are unique to him that he is campaigning on? That's a great question, and I think my answer would be no. Okay. I think Joe Biden and and I and I honestly think what is interesting about this race is that so many of the Democrats are running not necessarily on policy issues outside of healthcare, which is the big policy issue, but they're running as, you might have heard this this term thrown around, as electable, the most electable, the yeah. person who can most beat Trump. And there is something to Biden's appeal, which is, okay, he's got the Obama thing. Yeah. But also, if Trump won over a certain contingent of, let's say, um, older middle-class white guys from the upper Midwest, so like Ohio and Wisconsin and Michigan, well, Joe Biden kind of appeals to those guys, right? Like, he sort of talks like them, and he sort of looks like them. And so he might be a person who can win back those 
strategically important people in strategic states for Democrats. Yeah. Okay. Should we move on to the next? What about Elizabeth Warren? Yeah. Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, has been, um, frankly, a really interesting candidate this, this time around. Like I said before, she just overtook Joe Biden in the national polling average, um, which, frankly, if you had said to me six months ago that Elizabeth Warren was going to be the front runner in the Democratic primary, I might have said, I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, in part because um, she does represent a lot of things that make Democrats nervous, going back to the electability thing. Totally. And I'll stipulate that, like, the electability thing is kind of complicated, and a lot of people will say, like, it's a projection of a lot of social constructs, right? But but Democrats were really peeved that uh, they lost in 2016, and their candidate was an older white woman who kind of had the sheen of, let's say, like, East Coast elitism. Mm-hmm. And if you if you just, like, you know walked Elizabeth Warren up to someone blind on the street and said, this lady's a senator from Massachusetts and she used to be a Harvard law professor. <laughs> <laughs> Some things would come to mind. Yeah. Um, and, there, you know, she's a similar age to, to Hillary Clinton, all that stuff. But I think she has, we've seen her polling numbers really sort of steadily increase over the course of the summer to this point where she's overtaken Joe Biden. And in part, I think it's because she's really done this pretty good job of kind of telling people who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I, she, she's decently new to national politics. Um, she first got involved in politics right around the financial crash of 2007, 2008. She was an expert on bankruptcy law, and she kind of came in and helped advise some of these congressional committees and sort of gained this reputation for being um, a fighter for consumer finance protections, right? So so protecting American consumers from super high credit card interest rates, things like that. And if you guys have ever heard of the Consumer Finance Credit Bureau, that was her conception, right? So it's this, it's this government agency that's meant to protect consumers from super high interest rates and things like that. Okay. Yeah. But it also made her very kind of politically um, controversial. A lot of Republicans really disliked her for that. Okay. And she eventually ran for Senate in 2012 in Massachusetts, kind of on that like progressive fighter thing. And she's sort of been slowly becoming a pretty big figure in national politics since then. I bet a lot of the listeners have heard about maybe her selfie lines at her rallies. Mm-hmm. This is this thing that she's done where you know she recently had a rally in New York City um, and she spent something like six hours taking selfies with literally thousands of people. And that is kind of her thing, which is retail campaigning to the extreme. Um, and she's she calls people, right? Like on, on last weekend's SNL, they, SNL yeah. they, were, they were parodying that she calls donors. Yeah, so Warren's big thing wow. is, is that, yeah. Is that <laughs> I have she, to, I'm behind on SNL. I've got to watch it. It's been good. It's They've got some... I, I liked the Maya Rudolph, Kamala Harris mm-hmm. thing. Warren's big thing is that she's only taking small dollar donations. And basically what that means is Bernie Sanders kind of pioneered this in 2016 where he said, donate to me on the internet and I won't waste all my time talking to people at fancy dinners where you pay $300 to watch the candidate give a stump speech. And Warren's kind of really built off of Bernie Sanders' innovation in that in that sense. So it was actually a controversial stand for her to take at the very beginning of the primary. Actually, her, her, um, her first finance director quit because of it. He said, you're not going to be able to make enough money to sustain this campaign. But to her, you know, kind of her own innovation is that she has done, like you say, she calls donors. She does the selfies. She's really endearing herself um, 
to voters kind of on a especially in states like Iowa, but also she gets a lot of media attention for frankly being this very accessible candidate. And it's interesting. I think the selfie the selfie thing that she does, I think is a little bit of a rebuke to Hillary Clinton, who after the 2016 election gave this interview where she said, I really don't like the nature of modern campaigning because instead of like talking to me, people want to take a selfie with me, right? Interesting. And I think Warren sort of said, maybe Warren wishes she would talk to more people, but she sort of realized, well, this is what, you know, the customer is always right, right? And if Mm -hmm. you're running for president, it's called retail campaigning for a reason, right? You're trying to give people what they want. So what's her platform? Great question. Her platform is basically Bernie Sanders' platform. So it is okay. Medicare for all. That's basically the big one. Yeah. She also has another really big policy, which is called a wealth tax. So she wants to, it's kind of exactly what it sounds like, basically tax the wealthiest, you know, couple percentage points in America and have it be sort of a give back to the middle class kind of thing. Now, that's a very, she also has another, you know, another one of her big platforms is we need to break up big tech. She's kind of raised the ire of both sort of like the new tech business people, the Facebook types, Mm -hmm. and also kind of old school banking types, right? By saying, um, we're going to, we're going to suss out your family wealth and we're going to make you pay a decently high tax on it. Um, Those are sort of new concepts to introduce into um, mainstream American political debate. And so I think she's she sort of moved past Bernie Sanders in that sense of saying, Bernie Sanders' big thing, I think, was, yes, we can do Medicare for all, right? Her big thing is, well, you know what? I have this idea for here's how we can, it's almost, I mean, you, maybe this is an uncharitable way to phrase it, but she's saying, here's a sort of punitive um, tax on wealthy Americans or here is some punitive action on these big tech companies that are, you know, looking into your private data, all that stuff, I'm going to do something about it. The critique of those things are a wealth tax could be really hard to enforce and wealthy people would hide their money. And on the big tech side of things, I think, you know, if if anyone watched Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress maybe a year ago, and it was really interesting to watch how so many of the senators didn't understand the business model of Facebook. And so it almost sort of threw into really high relief how difficult it is for the government to know what the hell to do with Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not to break it up into a bunch of small companies, whether to regulate it more. So she's so she's kind of diving headfirst into these really chunky, hard-to-take-on issues in American life. And now what about Bernie Sanders? So you said that they have a similar platform. Like, yeah. what's his deal? Yeah. So I think Sanders and Warren share the most ideologically, okay. but perhaps the least in a, in a like self-presentation point of view. Totally. And I, I always, I mean, I think people like to say that everyone votes on their issues, right? This is the issue I care the most about. But the truth of the matter is politics and who you vote for is a lot more like dating. I call it political pheromones. It's like you kind of, you just like, you're just like attracted to one candidate over the other. I had a grandmother who like voted for George Bush because she said he was very handsome and she thought he looked more like a president. <laughs> and, I, and I think that pe- we should be realistic that people make decisions based on that. And I think a lot of Elizabeth Warren kind of put this more policy wonky, I'm a Democrat and proud of it kind of sheen on Bernie Sanders' policies. Bernie Sanders has always been kind of a, 
shit stirring outsider. Like that's, that's how she, he likes it. And, um, I would say that his, um, his campaign has been a little bit, he's still the, you know, the number three polling. Well, where is he from? So I know he ran in 2016, but like, what was his pedigree? Born in Brooklyn, where we are recording this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> One of us. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, but ended up moving up to Vermont at a very, it's not a very young age, probably in his, tw- in his 20s. Um, became the mayor of Burlington, Vermont. Uh, was a congressman there. So Sanders is not technically a Democrat. He's not a member of the Democratic Party, which is one of the reasons why Democratic leaders were kind of ticked off with him during the 2016 election. So is he an independent? He's an independent who, as they like to say, caucuses with the Democrats. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, but he, he would say of himself that he is a Democratic socialist. But now he's a senator. So when did he run for Senate. He was the mayor of Burlington. And then when did he get into like more national politics? In the not, uh, well, he was, a, I can't remember what the date of when he first ran for Congress, but it would be in the late eighties, early nineties. Okay. So he's, he's been in national politics for a while. Correct. Um, and you know, it's funny, my, my first real sort of Bernie Sanders Im- imprinting on my brain was in around 2011 to 2013. I worked at this political magazine in, in DC and we would always get these press releases from Bernie Sanders' office, like every day, every week, whatever it was. And they were always about issues that were really interesting, like child dental care in rural areas, because it's really hard for kids in rural areas to get to a dentist. You know, they could be literally hundreds of miles from somewhere. So they'll put together these centers um, where everyone can come on a Saturday and get their dental work done. And you always got these really sort of like worthwhile press releases from Sanders' office saying he's going to do a big uh, press conference on this, blah, blah, blah. But people kind of didn't cover him because they everyone was sort of like, eh, well, you know, we're dealing with another budget shutdown or whatever it was. But Sanders has always kind of been singing the same tune. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when he started his race in 2016, I really don't think he expected it to be as big as it became. But he started getting these really big rallies. He started getting a lot of outsized press coverage because Hillary Clinton was kind of thought to be like, she's, she's got it sewn up. Um, and, and so Sanders was around national politics for a really long time, but didn't break into a moment until 2016. And I think that a lot of factors conspired to, to make that break happen. I would say, you know, um, it might have taken about a decade for people's views on what happened in 2008 with the crash of the financial system to really mature, right? And we think we, if you if you look back at the last 10 years of American life, the election of the first black president, um, a really bad uh, financial era, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter. There were a lot of sort of movements pushing people to question systems and structures. And then Bernie Sanders, this kind of like, grumpy old white guy with frankly beautiful white hair in my opinion got <laughs> got up there and sort of sort of said yeah you're not crazy you're right and I'm running for president and I'm gonna I mean, he didn't say burn it all down but he basically said we're gonna change the structures completely because you're right these things are broken so what's his what's his platform so his platform is largely I would say the Medicare for all uh, health care plan and that is something that was taught was talked about by Democrats for a long time as like an ideal, but no one ever really sort of put it into the political realm of the possible. And that happened in 2016. 
And I would say Bernie Sanders, probably more than any other single individual, has shifted the Democratic Party left pretty radically in the past four years. In 2017, he introduced a bill in the Senate that was a Medicare for all bill that was never going to pass. But pretty much every single person who was in the Senate who's now running for president kind of had to sign on to that bill. It became what we call a litmus test, right? This is this is a thing that you should support if you are a Democrat who wants to run for president because this is the direction the party is going. And so Sanders has kind of laid down lines in the sand. The, don- the small donor model that a lot of candidates are using to sort of say, listen, I want to take the corporate money and corporate influence out of politics. Sanders really pioneered that. I mean, you could say it started a little bit earlier with this guy named Howard Dean, but we'll we'll kind of set him aside for now. Sanders was the person who really made it sing, you know, the idea of this is going to be a grassroots small donor campaign. And what's his economic policy? Because I feel like in the last debate, the only thing he said was like, it was like the 1%, the 1%, the 1%. Yes. <laughs> um. I would say Sanders is someone who supports, you know, a war and wealth tax kind of thing. In in 2016, he was more in favor of, um, if people remember that hearing the, the three letters TPP thrown around, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was this big trade deal that, that a lot of, um, let's say, Obama Democrats wanted signed. Bernie Sanders wants a little more what we call trade protectionism. He wants... He wants to sort of shield certain American factories and American businesses from low labor costs in China. So trade was his big thing, right, is he was saying, okay, American workers are really getting a raw deal because of unfettered free markets. I want to help them out a little bit. And frankly, he shares – Trump believes a similar thing. Now, Trump has has started a – trade war, which is probably too too complicated. Separate episode. Separate, <laughs> separate episode. But there is an idea that Bernie Sanders is responding to factories disappearing in certain parts of America, wage problems that American workers are having. I should say also, Sanders has been um, you know, a big proponent of the $15 minimum wage, things like that, right? Like pushing that into the, the national mainstream. Hillary Clinton also supported uh, a national minimum wage Um they kind of had these sort of silly arguments about how much should it be? You know, I want more, that kind of thing. But basically, Sanders is is um, a lot of his economic policy is aimed at, I would say, middle class and lower middle class workers and sort of improving their cash flow and sort of day to day living experiences. OK, so those are our three front runners. But then let's go through. So I. I outlined the top 10. So let's go more quickly through the other ones to give kind of who they are, what's their platform. So then fourth, I have Pete Buttigieg. Okay. Very young, in his 30s, mayor of South Bend, uh, openly gay. He's married to his husband. Um, Pete Buttigieg, I would say, is socially progressive and sort of moderate on everything else. Um, He's sort of going after Joe Biden's voters in, in a certain sense. He wants to be, you know, his big campaign line has been, I'm a um, a blue mayor from a red state. I, okay. un- I understand Republican voters, um, but I'm also a young face for the party, but not too far to the left. So he's trying to say, like, I am the future and I don't scare you too much about the future of the Democratic Party. Okay. So outside of um, kind of reforming health care and everything like that, does he have any issues that are uniquely his? Short answer, not really. Okay. Um, he has done 
some interesting things with trying to appeal to black voters, which is not necessarily his natural base. He, he is white, I should say, and from the Midwest. He has introduced a plan called, um, it's basically what he calls like the Marshall Plan for Black America. Um, I think it's, I think he's named it the Douglas Plan after Frederick Douglass. And he's basically trying to address economic inequality, housing discrimination. Um, but by and large, I would say, again, Pete Buttigieg's thing is um, running on personality. Young and um, a person who understands Republican voters and who might be able to appeal to them. And okay. he's really hoping to, to break out in Iowa, I would say. Okay. Okay. What about Kamala Harris? Kamala Harris is interesting. She is the senator from relatively newly elected senator from California. She was elected in 2016. So she's only been in national politics for a relatively short time. Um, she is the daughter of uh, Jamaican and Indian immigrants. So she is mixed race. Um, she was uh, the top prosecutor. She was the attorney general of Cal- California. Um, and she came out of San Francisco politics. So her thing has been uh, kind of like tough prosecutor lady. And she made uh, national headlines, I would say, during a lot of these Trump era Senate hearings where she was a consistently tough questioner. And I think in the era of Twitter, her the videos of her kind of like s- giving these sort of stinging, withering uh, cross-examinations of witnesses really spoke to a lot of Democrats. And I think people had been talking about her for, I would say, about a decade as an interesting politician to watch because she had these credentials of, yes, she's a woman of color, but she's also... Um, she's got the, this, you know, this is an old school political formulation of you got to be tough on crime, right? Mm-hmm. And she had that tough on crime thing. Ironically, her tough on crime thing is making her less appealing to a lot of black voters. Interesting. Um, so, so she's, so, and she is, I should say, like, was doing pretty well in the polls this summer and has kind of sort of uh, had a really big slump lately. Um, and yeah, I thought she was higher. She was for a while. Yeah, she was, I would say for a while she was in a, top you know there was probably a tier of like four to five candidates that we were taking pretty seriously and she was part of that but after the first debate where she kind of called out joe biden for his stances on busing and for those comments on segregationist senators she hasn't really had a moment or a momentum and i think a lot of people who might have liked kamala harris have maybe um danced on over to the elizabeth warren camp because they might have wanted a woman. They wanted someone more to the left, and Warren seems to have a more, I would say, cohesive sense of what her campaign is all about. Now, what's Kamala Harris's policy, like policy platform? Because in the last debate, I felt like her main shtick was like anti-Trump, mm-hmm. but it, she didn't really have a lot to say of her own. I think that's a perceptive read, right? Her whole her whole thing has become I'm prosecuting the tr- the case against Trump. She got a lot of flack actually during the summer for kind of not taking policy stances. She her whole thing is I'm left but not too left. Mm-hmm. And so she didn't want to she was one of those senators who signed on to Sanders's Medicare for All plan. But then during the summer she kind of said, "Well, I don't want to I don't want to freak people out and say that I'm going to take their private insurance." But I also am putting out this lefty healthcare plan. And a lot of people, it ended up being, I think, in the eyes of a lot of people, a sort of mushy stance. Okay. And so that's been her big critique, is that she doesn't have a lot of, you know, clear, zingy policy stances that people can, like, directly put onto her. So she's more left than a Biden, say, but less left than a Warren or Bernie. Correct. But not necessarily 
super clearly defined policy platform. Yes. I would, okay. And I would say that she was probably going for Warren voters who maybe were worried about Warren being too left and Biden voters. A lot of black voters, you know, as I said before, have have um, have glommed on to Biden as their candidate. And I think Harris was hoping that some of them would kind of come around to her. And that hasn't happened as much. OK. OK. What about Andrew Yang? Yeah, I was surprised to see him in six in this poll. We're keeping opinions out, but... You and me both, ladies. I would say Andrew Yang is... Okay, Andrew Yang is the candidate of the internet, is is my most concise way of saying this. He is... um, I believe he's in his late 30s or early 40s. I should say he is... um, He is like the... He is an East Asian candidate, which has made a lot of people like that's a that is a barrier breaking thing. Right. And I think we should just note that this Democratic field is super diverse to the point where we almost don't talk about it that much. But it is very diverse. Yeah. Andrew Yang has no experience in politics. What is his background? He founded a company. But what is it? He's kind of like a like a business school guy who (laughs) who who's founded a couple companies and like worked for a couple places and sort of has landed in this is any of the companies that he's founded or worked for named brandy or they no no okay. they're not which is not to say that he's not like um i think he i think he's comfortable yeah. um but i would say that his he's running what i would call a single issue campaign so his single issue is something called universal basic income and it basically means that he wants to give american families a certain amount per month, no matter what, no matter who you are, no matter your how much income you're taking in, you know, at a job or whatever, he wants to give everyone a certain baseline because he, his big thing is the machines are taking over, automation is coming for you, and we need to think creatively about how society is going to function when some people are basically automated out of their jobs. So who's his base? <laughs> who as far as i can tell men on the internet but that's actually but that's actually not a charitable interpretation i think it certainly started as men on the internet who probably had a similar who probably as i said before maybe saw themselves in andrew yang right like yeah i too read a lot about this i too see this problem i think yang has done a decent job of um trying to universalize his message and say well you know who universal basic income would benefit stay-at-home moms who don't get paid for their work or uh, people who are taking care of their older relatives. Um, and so it's an interesting concept. I was actually talking last week to a guy who is an expert on basically inequality. And he said, you know, a lot of other major company uh, countries have this kind of thing. It is you get a certain amount of money for every child that you have, right? So every child basically has like in, in let's say, France will get like the parent gets $1,200 per child per month or something. Really? Right? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. I don't know if France has it. But like a lot of countries do this because it basically it basically acknowledges children are expensive. Things happen. No matter what your job status is, we think children should be protected, right? And so I think, again, if we're talking about the past four or five years of American politics being an era in which like ideas that we once thought of as inconceivable in America, they're being introduced into the mainstream. And I think that's what Andrew Yang's candidacy is doing. And it has excited a lot of people who are, who read, who read a lot of the internet, who are on Twitter a lot. And, mm-hmm. and I, you can be flip about it, but I do also think that there is something to say of like, okay, like this is an interesting concept. And yes, there are changes to the economy happening. People need to think about how to deal with it. Has, um, 
has he brought this issue onto the national stage? Like, are, are any other candidates now talking about this? Like, is he moving the issue forward or is he really the only candidate that's talking about this? It's a good question. I think, I don't think other candidates are engaging with him, say, on a debate stage in a, necessarily on his territory, right? Because they're, they're kind of busy with everyone else. Got it. So I would say that Yang is a little bit like Yang stands alone on, okay. this, <laughs> on this kind of stuff. Now, what about Beto O'Rourke? Beto O'Rourke is such an interesting figure in American politics. Okay. He was a two-term congressman from Texas, the El Paso area, which is obviously a border town. Was he a was he in the state congress or national? Congress? He was in national congress. Okay. So so O'Rourke was born in El Paso, um, spent a few years in Brooklyn. I believe he was also in, in Williamsburg for a couple of years. Um, went to school in New York, then moved back to Texas started a, um, I think he's perhaps our first web designer presidential candidate. He started a web design company in El Paso and started kind of a an alt-weekly, um, ended up marrying a woman whose father is quite, quite wealthy, uh, a very wealthy real estate investor. And that, I will say, helped a little bit in his, um, in furthering his political ambition. So he ran for Congress and and won and kind of became, I would say, O'Rourke's reputation was he's written a book about the drug war on the border. He's certainly been super out there this campaign about immigration issues. He speaks Spanish, so you'll you'll go around and see him try to kind of um, incorporate that into his campaign stump speech. And obviously, um, tragically, his district was home to a mass shooting recently. So he has taken on gun violence and tried to sort of be the face of we got to fix this in the primary. Um, he ran for te- he ran for he became kind of famous in the past year and a half because he ran for Senate against Ted Cruz in Texas and lost, but lost by a much more narrow margin than expected. And Texas is kind of this um, crazy red state. Right. And he sort of proved that, well, maybe you can turn out more Democrats than we thought. And so. His campaign launched with a Vanity Fair cover, and then that kind of soured people on it because mm-hmm. he seemed a little bit too like, yeah, I got this kind of thing. Yeah. So he's been an interesting, um, I would say almost like figure of odd tragedy in the like, um, we love you and then we hate you cycle of like media and public opinion. And he's kind of, he's sort of flatlined as, you know, a lot of people are sort of punching him as, you know, an empty, handsome shirt. What about Amy Klobuchar? Uh, Amy Klobuchar is the senator from Minnesota. Her background is also as a prosecutor. Um, Her whole thing, this campaign, has basically been, um, if I were to sum it up, I am the female alternative to Joe Biden. I'm moderate. I'm Midwestern. I'm going to appeal to Iowa voters. I'm not going to push things too far. I'm just progressive enough. I'm not taking controversial stands. I won't take away your private insurance. Um, Unfortunately for Amy Klobuchar, she hasn't really caught on on any of the fronts there are two there are a couple other women who might be a little bit more exciting than like midwestern amy and joe biden and pete Buttigieg have sort of you know i think pete Buttigieg just kind of stolen the thunder as like the um the sexiest moderate alternative to joe biden Mm -hmm. so klobuchar has kind of been left in this weird middle space of not a terrible campaign but just not a lot of there there because people aren't 
necessarily seeing her and saying like, yeah, her. She's okay. got the star power. Okay. And what about Cory Booker? I was surprised to see Cory ranking so low. I am too. Cory Booker is a really interesting figure. I mean, people have made a lot of Pete Buttigieg's being a Rhodes Scholar and all this stuff. Well, guess who was a Rhodes Scholar? Cory Booker. Cory Booker was like a really good um, Division One football player in college at Stanford. Cory Booker was uh, a really young mayor of Newark, New Jersey. He was sort of this, you know, kid from the suburbs who moved back to this really struggling city and made. He was kind of like one of the first Twitter famous politicians. He he became <laughs> famous and as the mayor of Newark because people would tweet at him that they needed their um, their driveway shoveled and the city hadn't come around and he would go out at night and shovel people's driveways. Oh, my God. Yeah. So then he ran for Senate in New Jersey and kind of became what I would call like a kind of like a left-leaning corporate Democrat, New York area politicians. um, So Connecticut, New York, New Jersey often get a lot of criticism because a lot of their donors are Wall Street people. So Cory Booker certainly kind of had that at his back, but he is young and handsome and black and dating Rosario Dawson apparently now. Yeah. Um, which I think is one of the funnier twists of the, of the primary. Totally. Um, I don't really know why Cory Booker has, hasn't gotten off the ground. He is, I will say when you see him in person, he shares a lot in common with Obama in the sense that he is yes, black, but also a really great speaker. I mean, he's very, you can see how practiced he is at that. Um, a lot of people tell me that he is a very good, um, ground game in states like South Carolina, where black voters are two-thirds of the primary electorate, and winning them is really important, and maybe Cory Booker is the guy to do it. So who knows? But um, he's, if I were putting money on, like, a this, if this were an actual horse race and I wanted to put money on a, on a low-ranking horse, I'd put it on Cory Booker, because he has a lot of experience, and he's kind of an interesting guy. Yeah. Okay, so the last one we're going to talk about, Julian Castro. Yeah. Uh, Julian Castro is a twin, which I think is important I to mention. I didn't know that. Yes, his brother, Joaquim, is a congressman. I didn't know oh that. Oh, my gosh. They're yes. both in politics They're and both they're twins. in politics. In fact, there's been some funny stuff where um, Joaquin has been on, like, uh, cable shows, and they'll identify him as Julian, and he'll have to say to the host, like, live on television, like, you have the wrong twin. So <laughs> so that's, like, the first thing that's I think. That's a fun you, fact. It yeah. is a fun fact. Very yeah. much so. But Julian was in the Obama administration. He was Obama's um, head of uh, housing and urban development. And so his thing has kind of been, he was like an establishment Democrat Obama guy. People thought he was exciting because he is Latino. um, He is young. He's part of a family dynasty, I guess. (laughs) First first, uh, generation family dynasty. Um, And he has gotten a lot of, I would say, boost and then bust from the debates. Boost because he kind of took Beto O'Rourke on in a couple of debates about immigration issues. They're both from Texas. Um, They're both kind of trying to make immigration their issue. And I think Julian got in a lot of good hits in the first couple of debates and kind of elevated himself as, oh, maybe that's a smart guy who knows what he's doing. He went a little bust in the last debate because he was, for lack of a better phrase, mean to Joe Biden. Um, kind of called Joe Biden old on the debate stage, and mm-hmm. that soured a lot of people, and Castro's poll numbers took a huge, huge dip afterwards. So I would say his campaign is in a little bit of trouble, and he's probably trying to make up some ground tom- tomorrow night. 
Okay, so there are nine other Democratic candidates <laughs> that are still in the race. They are all below 1%, and we're not going to cover them today. But I do want to spend a few minutes talking about the Republican side because there are candidates outside of Trump mm-hmm. who are running for president. And so, I mean, first, I'm curious what the precedent is for somebody challenging an incumbent president and, like, what is the likelihood, just, like, shoot a straight, that this matters that anyone else is running? So there is certainly precedent for people within a party challenging a sitting president from their own party. Um, you saw it happen in the Democratic Party when um, Teddy Kennedy of the of the Kennedys um, challenged Jimmy Carter. Um, now he didn't end up when <laughs> Teddy Kennedy didn't end up winning the primary, but he probably did a good job of damaging Carter, right? And Carter was really swept by Reagan. Um, so having an, an t- traditionally having a challenger from inside the party can be very damaging, a serious challenger. The Republican Party has gone out of its way to make sure that Trump does not have a serious challenger. Many of the early primary states have made it such that Trump will be the only candidate on the ballot, really, right? Got it. Which is which is okay. which a lot of which has uh, gotten a lot of these guys who are challenging Trump to cry undemocratic. So, uh, with regards to President Trump, are there any significant changes to his platform for 2020 versus 2016, or is he just like four more years? <laughs> well, I guess the newest prong is. Um, impeachment and that it's a witch hunt against him. I mean, I I would say, yes, the substance of his platform is pretty much the same, but now he has a little bit of this, um, I'm, I and by transitive property, you, my voters, are being persecuted by the Democrats who are, um, you know, who have gone out of their way the past couple of years to investigate me and trying to impeach me and you should vote for me to spite those people. So is that a talking point, or is he actually trying to reform impeachment policy? Uh, no, it's a talking point. Okay. <laughs> Although, okay. The, I will, yeah, well, let's not go into it. <laughs> okay. So there's three candidates, Weld, Walsh, and Sanford, that are challenging him. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do, do any of them have a chance? Like, are any of them, should we? No, none of them have a chance, but all of them are <laughs> interesting. Are they trying to bring something to the stage that is not being talked about by the Republican Party? I would say... I would say Bill Weld mm-hmm. and Mark Sanford are both trying to win back what I would call old school Paul Ryan country club Republicans. So people who are white and college educated, which are demographics that have traditionally voted Republican in this country. And they're trying to say, those candidates are trying to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Trump has completely bastardized the core views of this party. Uh, I'm going to take it back to what it was in frankly, four years ago, right? So Bill Weld actually ran as the vice presidential candidate. I remember him. Yeah, in the, for the Libertarian Party mm-hmm. in 2016. He, he, he uh, became a Libertarian in just, for that, um, just for that occasion. He was the Republican governor of Massachusetts. That's where I remember him yes. from. I, Are I you from Mass- Massachusetts? Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he was kind of like a, um, like a, you know, a Boston Brom kind of Republican, right? Like, I was... I covered the Libertarian Convention in 2016, and he talked about his grand uncle-in-law, Kermit Roosevelt, and how he helped overthrow the Shah's government. And it was just like this wild quote. And you were like, this is this man is, you know, the product of many, line- many years of like waspy education and intermarriage. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of Bill Weld. Is He's sort of like a, um, a jovial sort of scotch drinking Northeastern Republican who thinks Trump is an abomination and 
he probably won't get many votes, but he might get some libertarians to vote for him. Okay. I can see my dad voting for him. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> then you've got Mark Sanford, who's the other guy who's kind of going for that demographic, the white college educated, come to your senses, Republican voter. Mark Sanford, um, if, if everyone is old enough to remember this, had one of my favorite political scandals, which was he was the governor of South Carolina. And he told his staff that he would be out of the office for a few days hiking the Appalachian Trail. And it turned out that he was visiting his mistress in Argentina. And everyone found out. And it was this. (laughs) So we don't. So what I am intuiting here is that we do not have very strong challengers. So it is is likely, very, very likely that Trump gets the Republican nomination. Very likely. Very likely. In fact, Joe Walsh, who's the other guy, is, is probably... I would call him very Trumpian, actually. He has a reputation for being racist and xenophobic and kind of being a talking head personality. Um, and his, he's basically running on the platform of uh, Trump hasn't been effective enough, right? So he's kind of coming Got at it. it from a different direction. But I think he has, um, he, you know, he's not going to get the airtime for these networks because, you know, a place like Fox or just the structures of the Republican Party are like absolutely not... None of you guys are getting on, and especially not the poor man's version of Trump. So is it safe to say that the Republican Party, and the, especially like the national political arm of the Republican Party, is very like consolidated behind Trump? Absolutely. Okay. okay. Absolutely. Okay. This has been so helpful. So I'm helpful. very, I'm feeling much more educated going into this next debate on who these people are. Good, good, good. Same. It can be so overwhelming. Yeah, it really can't. For me, too. So. There's so many people. <laughs> There's so many people. Yeah. Just just keep your phone by you and, like, Google. Yeah, yeah that's what I was doing the first yeah. Google Castro twins, that kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. But, Claire, where can people keep up with you if they would like to hear more from you? Sure. Uh, well, you can go over to 538.com. That's the letters, not the numbers. Or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Claire Malone. Wait, tell Claire people what 538 is. Yeah. Just a quick plug. Sure. Because I didn't know until Becca told me, and yeah. I felt stupid. Abs- no, no, no. 538 is um, a site that we mostly write about politics and sports, <laughs> um, and we do it kind of from num- from a numbers point of view. Um, so we'll follow polls and stuff and on the sports side, which frankly I don't really read as much because I don't follow sports. You know, sports has a lot of statistics in it. Um, but we try to I, – I don't come from a numbersy background. I come from a magazine background. And so I write about numbers, but I kind of try to put, like, stories and people to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we have a lot of beautiful graphics that help you understand – trends and demographics and you know if you're a visual learner <laughs> i encourage you to to come on come on over and check us out um so that's kind of our deal and we're, we're owned by abc news and we, we're kind of like a special specialty site cool yeah cool well claire thank you so much for joining us of course thanks for having me this was really helpful good 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 